Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. Welcome to Shane's Inner Circle Podcast with your hosts, Shane and Lydia. All right. Welcome to the October podcast. I wanted to uh, thank all of you for the amazing questions you've been sending in. And this month is going to be deemed camera month. Our first question, what components of an image have the biggest impact and are the most important in your opinion? Camera movement, lighting, or composition? Well, all of those are pretty much the most important thing in, you know, lensing uh, a movie or, or any project. The camera movement is obviously going to be tailored to the emotional story. The lighting is tied into the emotion of our characters, and the composition wants to be able to match what that character's emotion is kind of going through as well. This is what the Illumination Experience Tour has really been all about, is uh, lighting, lensing, camera movement, and composition based on character's emotion. So I think uh, this is a, a very difficult question to go into in a podcast, but I wanted to offer up you getting the workshop HD download to be able to really see how I use all these things to be able to really shape a movie, a commercial, a documentary, an indie project to be able to get the biggest emotional impact to the audience. And it's done by using all three of those things. Question number two, what do you run through when you do a camera test for a film? I've been shooting on an FS700 for a year and a half, and while I am comfortable operating the camera, I feel like there are still things I could learn about it in terms of really understanding what it can and cannot do well. Recently, I remember you saying how you approach using multiple cameras on one shoot, all doing what they all do best. At least in my personal situation, I've been shooting with the FS700 and an Odyssey 7Q external recorder. The second part of my question is, I suppose, is how do I find what tool I am using is best at what 
and isn't it good at? So what it's good at, what it's not good at. Well, you know, you really don't find that out until you do an extensive amount of tests. Uh, when we did the need for speed test, we tested nine different formats, one being motion picture Kodak film stock. And you quickly can see what these cameras are going to be very good at and what they are not. Some examples, uh, the black magic we tested was not very good with IR pollution. So using NDs, it was going to require us to do a lot of IR and It seemed to blow out the highlights fairly quickly, and uh, it had a lot of rolling shutter issues, and it wasn't very fast. So your night exteriors and everything, you were pretty limited at 800 ISO, any much above that, and it really kind of got noisy. The 1DC did very well in low light. Its compression to 4K was fairly soft compared to a C500. So taking that image in post and trying to sharpening it up, but at the same time sharpening it, and you would get kind of a video look. I had kind of made the wrong choices with the lenses, but that's truly all that we could fit in these cars, and fitting them over the engine blocks and everything, we were limited to going with still glass. Hindsight being 2020, I don't think I would have done that, and we would have had to gone with a much, much higher quality of glass, which does not really exist in the still world that can resolve uh, better on the big screen. There is no comparison between a 3000 or 4000 piece of glass and a $25,000 piece of glass with the same lens, you know, the same focal length. There's the ability of that lens to see much more definition and much more depth and much more color depth. So, you know, for everyone that says, I can't afford these type of lenses, I completely understand, but it's not just Hollywood saying, well, these are cinema glass and uh, you're going to have to pay more. It's truly far superior, like 10 times far superior. Getting back to the camera situation, the Alexa did very well in overexposing. Its S-Log was able to handle over four stops over and brought the skin tone back absolutely perfectly. The Canon C500 could only go a stop and a half. So you can say, okay, this is going to be work beautiful during day exteriors when you have all these extreme conditions. And there will be tons of overexposing in the background or if you're shooting interiors and there's going to be a lot of hot windows, the Alexa is going to handle these extreme conditions much better. The Red Epic we tested, the Dragon sensor obviously hadn't come out yet but the Red Epic was incredible in the underexposure. The skin tones were not as bad as I thought they would be but now with the new Dragon, the series of tests that I've done with that that camera is superior. You pack a wallop with that ability of that camera to not only shoot in 6K, 5K, 4K, 3K, 2K, all the different frame rates, its wonderful size and compact nature. It's just a very well thought out camera across the board. And now that they finally have gotten the color space in the right pocket, they've made the sensor much faster. I've been shooting with 3200 ISO to uh, no problem whatsoever. This camera is really moving to the top of my 
toolbox in regards to using it on my next feature. So I'm uh, really happy about that. But it's truly the testing. It's it's seeing these things side by side because testing your camera, you're going to find out what it does very well and what it doesn't do well. But it's the cross comparison to see it next to something, just like a cross comparison with lenses is such a eye-opening experience. If you just shoot one lens, then it looks good and looks sharp and looks great. But then when you compare it side by side to a to another one, you can immediately see what it is not doing. But that's why the inner circle exists and I am sharing as much of these tests with you on every single camera that I can get my hands on and that I have the time to be able to do. I'm trying to pass that on to you so you can make the best decision of what is going to be the right tool for your creation and make a very good educated guess based on my tests. All right, next question. Hey, Shane. So thankful you are doing this inner circle. Looking forward to learning. I've just been allocated my Dragon Sensor upgrade for my Epic M. Wondering if you have much experience with the sensor and how you approach exposing the image. Lighting for latitude, etc. Would love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much, Stephen. I have shot five projects with the new Dragon Sensor, and every single one of them has been a home run. The Dragon Sensor and its new color space, along with its kind of IR filter on the sensor, is pretty awesome. I have shot the camera up to 3200 ISO, with very, very clean results. Some people are talking about not doing that. They're talking about uh, shooting at 800 and underexposing it. Lighting to 3200, setting your camera at 3200 if that's what you want, and just run one shot. Know that that is the light that you want, and you've kind of lit to that 3200, and then you go back to 800 ISO, and you end up bringing it up in post. So you're underexposing the image, underexposing that raw file, and by bringing it up in post, people are saying there is less noise. I have not been able to do that test yet, so it's something you would definitely want to try. I know just my experience with the C500, it's not a true raw file, so you really can't compare them, but underexposing the C500 is a recipe for disaster. I know that underexposing that camera does not work, but I would really be interested on doing uh, this next round of tests that I'm doing with the dragon using this idea of lighting it with 3200 ISO and then kicking the ISO down to 800, which is its native, and then using the post process to bring up that image and see what the noise level and how the image holds up. Overall, very, very happy with its color space, very happy with its clean ISO nature, and whether it's 6K, 5K, or 4K, I'm just feeling feeling that it's an incredible cinematic sensor and loving the look and feel. The next question, what is the best way to match up color on a Mark II to a Mark III? The color seems off to me, even using the manual color settings. One 3200 looks different to the other camera. Hope that made sense. Thanks, Jason. 
Jason, the Mark II and the Mark III are completely different sensors. I find that the Mark III is much more contrastier, and I think they've done that to kind of eliminate the noise factor that everyone had in the Mark II and how the blacks were somewhat gray and they never registered true blacks. The Mark III kind of, I think, is an overcompensation. Its blacks are too crisp and too dark. There's really not much leeway in there to dig anything out. I've slid off of the Mark II and the Mark III. I haven't dealt with any of these uh, Magic Lantern RAW files when you're shooting with six and seven cameras with a whole crew that is, is coming in. It only breeds a recipe for disaster with your team just not being up to snuff with the hack and what it is kind of uh, delivered for me is a lot of pink and, and uh, magenta footage that uh, was not able to be saved. I would have to say that the manual color settings, you kind of do your best. Uh, 3200 ISO is never advisable on a Mark II. As high as I would ever push that camera was 1600 ISO. So the minute you go to 3200, you're going to have a very, very difficulty of matching any kind of color to a Mark III, because the Mark III is going to be crushed down in its blacks. It has a much a better sensitivity in its sensor, so it's going to be a cleaner image at 3200, and uh, the Mark II is going to completely fall apart. All right, the next one. Hi, Shane. I have a question about Canon Log on the C100. I'm exposing for Caucasian skin tones, hot spots with zebras set at 75%, as I have done since using ENG cameras in the past. By using this, I've been able to work in news environments where cameras are shared and viewfinders are all different, and with a moment's notice, get a reliable benchmark every time and good picture. So I'd like to continue using this rather than the C100's built-in waveform. I am really quite confused about Canon Log. Is it a log within Rec. 709, or is its own thing entirely. Should I be exposing lower or higher than 75 to take advantage of an extra dynamic range? Appreciate you covering this if possible. Cheers, Ben. This is an awesome question, Ben, and I get asked this a lot. And this is kind of transitions into Jason's question, where I think the C100 is the DSLR killer. There is absolutely no reason for you to go and be shooting on a DSLR now that the C100 exists. The camera is smaller, lighter, and much more user-friendly and cheaper in the long run. To kit out a C100 is probably half the price to kit out a DSLR because you're taking something that's a still camera and trying to turn it into something that it's not. Where, you know, it's, I've done it. I shot a, several movies on this and I've shot a lot of commercials with the DSLR turning it into something that it's not. It's difficult and it's quirky and it requires a lot of hand holding, which the C100 does not. So let's get into the exposing. 75% is pretty high for skin tones on that camera. 
I would suggest more in the 55 to 65 range with that camera or 60 to 70 at the most because you want to be able to give yourself some range when you increase your contrast and bring down your blacks. And this is something that you're going to need to do to make this log file look good. And it's very subtle adjustments. This log file is damn good in regards to being able to color balance it very quickly and all the color information pretty much being there. Where an S-Log, there's no color information. A Black Magic, there's pretty much no color information. You have to crank the color into the image because it's such a flat file. With Canon Log, it's not like that. The color information is there. You have a baked-in file. So if you are shooting the right color temp, it's going to look absolutely beautiful with just a slight contrast tweak and bringing the blacks down to true black. If you shoot with the wrong color temp and try to swing it one way or the other, that file is baked in. So you will have to swing it and you get much more of a monotone image. Selecting the correct color temperature never auto white balancing this camera, never selecting the cloudy sign, the uh, tungsten bulb, or the sun signal is how I expose this camera. So it's always using the color temp, never using any of those icons. It's cool that you set your zebra up. I would just reduce that zebra into the more 70 maybe being your highest or maybe 65 being your highest. That will give you much more range in the color correction process. And that's a great area for skin tones to come in and at. On Need for Speed, I brought my skin tones in way too low, had to push that image, boost it way up, and I had every single shot was noisy. Fathers and daughters, I exposed more to the 55 to 65 area of skin tones, and I didn't have one noisy image in that. It's a camera that you want to give light, and you want to expose those skin tones. Now, obviously, in dimly lit situations, you're not going to be going for 55 to 65. You're going to want to play it for what it is. So what the mood is in your scene, if they're supposed to be at a bar, and they're supposed to be, it's supposed to be dark and not all brightly lit, then obviously you would be bringing those skin tones down into the 15 to 20, maybe 25 range, and it will do incredibly well down there if everything else is in this low light situation. But overall, if you're out day exteriors, if you are doing day interiors, night interiors that have a higher key scenario, you want to be in the 65 range on skin tones. Thank you, Ben. Next question. Here we go. Thanks for taking time to build this new website and for making so much of your personal knowledge available to other filmmakers over the past several years. You mentioned one of the intro clips on the Inner Circle that you would be posting your custom camera profiles and LUTs for the Canon EO cinema cameras. As a C300 owner, this is of particular interest and an added incentive to my early subscription. When will you be making these uh, available on the Inner Circle site? I'd really like to check these out, Keith. So we deliver one a month, Keith. I think we're in the DSLR world right now. We're releasing those profiles that I used on, on Active Valor and some of my commercial work. 
So right now we're releasing the DSLR profiles, 5D and 7D, and 1DC that I used on uh, Active Valor and Need for Speed. And I know the C300s will start coming out. I think the first one we're going to release is how I set up that camera in regards to arranging all the menus and putting them all in different places so you have easy access. And then we will start releasing the next, like the C300 and the C500 profiles. The next question is, I know a camera is only as good as the operator and the camera doesn't make the film, but all the elements within. Knowing that, do you feel the Sony A7S and the GH4 are also pushing Canon 5Ds to the back? Do you feel that you may start to stray from the Canon 5D because of the specific possibilities of these two cameras? Well, that's a very good question. I've been a very big DSLR supporter over the years. It uh, has helped me deliver some amazing imagery, but kind of where the technology has uh, driven us, the Canon 5D has definitely been pushed to the back of the bus. It's not being pushed back by the Sony A7S or the GH4, but more the C100 with a uh, Atomos Ninja Blade recorder. Now, with this new update of the C100 Mark II, there's really not a reason to be shooting with a DSLR. It's cheaper to shoot with a C100, and to kit it out is far more inexpensive. And you have the power of a log file, you have power of internal NDs, you have a camera that's set up to actually be a video camera and not a still camera posing as a video camera. The Sony a7S and the GH4 are exactly that. They are still cameras posing as video cameras. If I had to take these two cameras and kind of put them into a 180 degree swath of what I feel a cinematic camera would do and me mixing uh, formats and sensors. Okay, if if I had to put it in the price range and 180 degrees, the C100 would fill up 170 degrees of that percentage. And then the Sony A7S would fill up 1% and maybe the GH4 filling up another 9%. And then the Canon 5D, not even filling up a percentage. There you have it. I think you you use the cameras and exploit their best features. The Sony A7S has maybe one feature that to exploit, and that's its low-light capabilities and how small it is. The GH4 having its ability to record 4K in a very small format size and being able to use stabilization, that's pretty much all. I would be able to use those cameras at those price points for. Next question. I'm really interested in better understanding the visual aesthetics in filmmaking. For example, I've heard Shane talk about a lens that looks creamy. I want to understand what attributes in that in the frame he's referring to so I can try to see it as well. Camera tests are another area I'd like to know what he's looking for. Is it things that are objective concrete factors that can be quantified or I imagine some factors are or is it just what he likes or doesn't like but can't put his finger on it? I imagine he might say to me, look for what you like and I can do that 
but I'd also like to know if that's possible to learn what Shane likes, which has the weight of his experience. Another example is I see folks adding a vignette and post to the frame. To me, that says bad lens, but I guess many people like it. Thanks, Rob. Okay, Rob. This is a great question. The creaminess in the lens that I describe is uh, based on how sharp the image is. And the creaminess usually has two factors, the contrast ratio of the glass, as well as the sharpness of the glass. The Canon is a creamy kind of glass. It is not as sharp and it kind of has a little lower contrast. The Zeiss and the Canon are pretty equal in their sharpness, but the Zeiss is a much contrastier piece of glass and it doesn't necessarily see as much color information as the Canon does or they're very comparable in, in regards to delivering that. You'd have a contrastier look with the Zeiss, a little colder look. The glass is much more white, where the Canon tends to be a little warmer and creamier in regards to how soft it is. It's hard to have still lenses because they're manufactured by the millions and their care is is never as careful as a Panavision Primo Prime that have been all made by hand, or a Cook S4 that has been made by hand, or a Zeiss Ultra Prime way back in the 60s, early 70s, that are made by hand. These lenses, you can see that ability and how sharp they are, how creamy they are, uh, purely based on the expertise of the glass very, very quickly. The Cook look is something that's very white. It has a wonderful sharpness, but it definitely is uh, resolving the blue and the green levels way before it resolves the red. Okay, this is based on being a film lens because red is your last layer of emulsion. So if a lens kind of resolves red first, it's going to be fairly soft because red is the last layer of emulsion. And anytime you light red with film, it definitely defocuses. It just it does exactly what your eye, how your eye reacts to red. When you use red, it defocuses. You can't see the subtle nuances of like, say, a skin uh, or detail. Same, it reacts the same way with your eye. You know, Kodak film stock was was designed around the human eye and its aspects, uh, just like a lens is designed like our eye with the aperture. So I would say that with this, the still lenses don't have this resolving nature because they're obviously cheaper pieces of glass. Even the expensive ones at $4,000 or five or $6,000, and I'm talking about prime lenses, I'm not getting into the long 300 and 600 millimeter because those, even though they might be fifteen or $20,000, still don't resolve as well as a cook. Uh, 180 or a Cook 300. There's absolutely no comparison. The what I'm looking at for creaminess and sharpness has a lot to do with the contrast ratio of the lens, the colors that uh, the lens kind of resolves first. It's a very advanced question you're asking, Rob, and I love that. But to go into it would probably take the whole damn podcast. In my tests, 
I'm looking for the color and the bokeh what its three-dimensional qualities are. And when I say three-dimensional qualities, I'm talking about how far the background feels like it's being drawn towards our model. What shape of her face is happening because of the distortion or lack thereof of distortion. All these things play into selecting a lens. And yes, it is something that you're feeling. It's not something sometimes that you can put a label to. Because so much about film is what you feel. That's kind of what the Illumination experience has been about on tour, is really the feelings of a movie, uh, of a commercial, of a documentary, of a, a corporate video. It's what you want the audience to feel and what specific type of glass is going to help bring that feeling and that emotional content to the forefront. For me to go through and systematically tell you exactly what I'm looking for, I'm saying that, say, 60% of it is what I'm feeling, and the other 40% I can quantitate into, yes, I can see the background is being pulled towards her on a 21 mil on the Leica, compared to the 21 Cook, where it's throwing it further away and has a more three-dimensional quality. I can look at the bokeh and say that the bokeh at higher f-stops on the Leica are much rounder because there's more blades where the cook, if you're not shooting at a two, you're not going to get round bokeh. You are going to get a bokeh that has, you know, stop sign shapes. The color, you can immediately see a lens's color and its contrast ratio. These are things that you can see immediately side by side. The cooks in our test were very white. They resolve blue first. The cannons are very warm. They go for resolving red first. I hope I've kind of answered your question, Rob, and gone down the right road. Next question. Hi, Shane. First of all, thank you so much. You have been true and real in every aspect. I'm a DP from Panama, Republic of Panama. I'm starting my first feature film on Monday, the 18th. I'm going to shoot it with the C500, a 24, a 35, a 50, and a 135 Canon cinema lenses, and a Defy G12. Tonight, I did my first run trail, and it was pretty heavy. It looked awesome, but heavy. The only way I have, I think, to alleviate weight is taking out batteries from the equipment and power most of the accessories with LiPo batteries. So I got a universal power pack to distribute the power from it. The people from Red Rock told me that they recommend brick batteries, not LiPo batteries. Do you think or know if doing the LiPo batteries will hurt any of the equipment? Odyssey for the 2K 12-bit, DPX, C500, micro follow focus. Thanks so much. And when will you upload a few of the LUTs for the C500? I can't wait to try them out. Okay, boy, everyone's on this LUT thing, so bear with us, and all is coming in the LUT department. Thank you so much to all of you for your kind words about the inner circle and this thing that Lydia and I have created. I love it. I love all the input that all of you have been giving me. I just have to say the Secret Society Facebook page is off the hook, and if you are not on that page and, and getting involved in it, you are missing out of one of the 
biggest factors and wonderful opportunities that the inner circle provides for all of you. So make sure you get on that baby. Lipo batteries are awesome. Don't be swoon away by saying everything has to have a brick. They are very heavy. And on fathers and daughters, we powered up all of the Gemini. We powered all the remote follow focus. We powered everything off of lipo batteries. They're very efficient. They're very lightweight. And as long as you are having the right cables to distribute the correct amount of voltage to each one of your devices requiring power, then you are good to go with those LiPo batteries. They're unbelievable. We bought a ton of them on Fathers and Daughters because we were doing three Movies at a time and three Geminis, three Remote Follow Focus. We would have them power the DP7s as well for the Focus Pullers, uh, as well as the Remote Follow Focus system. So everything was designed specifically off of LiPo batteries. So rest assured that uh, you are good to go with that. And thank you so much for sending that question. All right, Shane, another question. Something I have not seen posted is using Nikkor lenses on a DSLR. Lots of articles about buying adapters and the fact they can be used. I know this is basic, but the process of using and setting up manual prime lenses on a DSLR for video, this is an issue of focusing with a rig. There must be better strategies for setting focus when the camera operator is moving around and the object of focus is an ever-changing target. This is something that I get... Uh, questions a ton about the DSLR and mounting different lenses on it. I basically change the way Canon deals with everything by mounting a Nikon lens on a Canon camera. The reason we got 24P and the reason we got the 5D Mark II to go manual so quickly is because I was shooting with Nikon glass on a Canon lens because that's the only way I could trick it to uh, go manual. I'm a cinematographer. Auto doesn't fall into my mindset. I have to be in control. With this, the Nikkor glass is absolutely amazing. The autofocus Nikkor glass is nothing that you would want to use. You have to use uh, only the manual Nikon glass. I've done some still stuff, you know, still glass with the Nikon, the AI and the AIS, I find to be some of the best Nikon glass with an adapter to put on that Canon. If there's other Nikkor glass that you are looking to put on, as long as it's not an autofocus situation, you're going to be good to go on the Canon. Keeping stuff in focus, uh, there is no workaround other than this pixel for pixel thing that uh, has been offered in the C100, the C300, and soon to be the C500, where as long as you're using Canon glass, it is auto-focusing and doing all the stuff that you would want it to be. I still haven't really got my hands in that. Just reading the reports that it's working fairly well. If you're shooting on a DSLR and you're shooting with uh, a full-frame sensor and you're not shooting at a high f-stop, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's out of focus, especially if you're running all around. This is the inherent issues with the DSLR and the full-frame sensor, and this is why we have focus pullers, and they are worth their weight in gold. I'm being sponsored by Panavision for a film shoot, and I have the choice of Primo lenses or Zeiss. I'll be using the Panavision Gold camera. Which one should I use for an outdoor early morning shoot? 
Thank you, Nikki. I would go with the Primo lenses. I think those lenses are absolute gold. They have a beautiful distortion, a beautiful three-dimensional quality. They handle highlights extremely well. They flare beautifully, and they have a really great contrast ratio that just looks cinematic. Next question. Do you mainly use prime lenses or zoom lenses, or does it depend on the shot? Also, what brand do you mainly use for features? Cheers, Leslie. I mix those. On the camera, I use prime lenses. On a crane, I'm going to put a zoom lens because sometimes moving the base to a specific place or having the variance of, of a zoom lens is very important on a crane and is very important on a helicopter. Those kind of devices, it's very important on a Russian arm car. You don't want to necessarily be using prime lenses on these vehicles because you cannot quickly change focal lengths and get a, a variety of different looks and focal lengths by constantly switching out prime lenses. For most of the camera, if I'm doing a scene, it's always going to be a prime lens. If it's on a crane or a Russian arm or a helicopter, I'm going to be using a zoom lens. Now, which zooms do I like to use? I love the Agenews, the 17 to 80, the 24 to 290. I think there's a 19.5 to 95. Those lenses give beautiful circle flares, and I love the, the Agenew glass. When shooting Panavision, the Primo zooms, I think, are by far the best in the world. You have a 14.5 to 50, a 17.5 to 75, and then a 24 to 275. There's also this really cool 19 to 95 that's amazing they make incredible glass and i think uh the best glass in the world other zooms uh i'm not a big fan of the fusionons i think they're too sharp and they're just weird overall they just have a very video feel the cook zooms are okay i'm i'm a big cook prime person but not necessarily a big cook zoom person i would go panavision primo primes the old ultra zeiss you know the ultra primes also the cook s4 primes are kind of my three lenses that i use to shoot almost everything that i do regarding diffusion filters the cost for Fagal 110 Noir stocking and a Tiffin Black Promise filters are pretty close. Is there an advantage to using one over the other? Which would you recommend? Both of them deliver somewhat the same look in regards to softening the contrast. The Promist, depending on the layer of the thickness, you're going to have an increase in that. The Black Net is definitely a look. With that comes how it blows out highlights, how it does this beautiful kind of rainbow effect around highlights. I think it makes skin look unbelievable, but it's definitely a look by using black promist and using it at uh, lower levels and everything you're going to get the contrast shift but not necessarily such a baked in look like a, a fagal 110 behind the lens if i was to do a period piece i would definitely be using a fagal net behind the lens reason being behind the lens compared to in front of the lens is just your ability to handle highlights and flares if i'm going to take my black promised and I'm going to aim it at a light or aim it at the sun, it's going to milk out that filter pretty 
damn quickly. But with a black net on the back of the lens, it's going to bloom the sun absolutely beautifully or bloom a light absolutely beautifully and still keep a very nice contrasty look in your blacks because it's not milking the whole filter. So that would be my suggestion on that. What are the lenses that help create the film look? It's so hard to describe because your film look is going to be different than my film look. I'm a person that does not like stuff so sharp and has really embraced digital technology, but by making it softer with older glass and older lens technology and stuff that is not the newest and the sharpest, preferring not to shoot in 4K, but shooting in 2K so it's not so sharp and and doesn't have as much resolution. It's very subjective, this film look. I would say your best way to achieving a film look is going with lenses that have been used in the filmmaking world, which would be Zeiss Ultra Primes, Cook S4 Primes, Ingenue, Panavision Primos, old Ultra Zeiss Primes, all these lenses that have delivered the film look on motion picture film for years, and there's a specific design to those lenses that are not being designed in the newer lenses that are coming out. So that concludes our camera-themed podcast for October. I wish all of you a very happy Halloween. Take care, and thank you very much again. Bye-bye. If you love what you're listening to here, go to shanesinnercircle.com. It is knowledge that is forged on the set. This is not a classroom environment. This is boots-on-the-ground, immersive learning, that you can apply immediately to whatever your skill level is. Knowledge you can trust, people that care. That's exactly what happens in our loving film community of shanesinnercircle.com. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps, most notably the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for All Access members, and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app, and this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.